It's my privilege to speak this morning, and so um, I'd like to speak to you about the cradle and the cross. And I have attempted to um, put a couple of things up on an uh, overhead so that you can at least uh, follow my logic and, and follow what I'd like to say to you this morning. But can we pray? Ask God to help me. <laughs> can we do that? We all need His help, eh? But let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your grace and your favor on our lives. And Lord, as we think about the amazing, amazing mystery of the Christian faith, that God came as a baby, that the fullness of eternity dwelt amongst us and lived as a, as a child. Uh, God, I pray once again that you would, you would ignite our hearts with the wonder of what happened and what we are celebrating right now. And Lord, for those of us that have been alive for many years. Sometimes we get a little bit uh, jaded and we forget to ponder and reflect on the amazing thing that happened when Jesus came and dwelt amongst us. Help us to reflect on that over the month that lies ahead as the church all over the world is celebrating the mystery of this incarnation. God with us, Emmanuel. Help us, I pray. Jesus, teach us this morning by your Spirit that we might be in every way grow up into the fullness of Jesus, who is the head, the head of all things. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Uh, so I want to speak to you this morning, as this, uh, you can see on the, on the screen there, about the incarnation. Uh, this is the word that Christians use to speak about the mystery of God becoming a human being. So it's a technical word, but I'm going to use it this morning because once we've got that in our heads, I can explain things um, uh, quite simply, hopefully. And uh, this idea, really, of God involving Himself in the affairs of humans by coming to earth is, is not a particularly new idea. Um, in Greek culture of the New Testament, there were numerous examples of in which gods were said to come to to. Um, earth and have man to manifest themselves in human flesh. So it was quite a common idea in Greek thinking and in, in the early New Testament times. And actually in our, in our own culture, the idea of um, super beings coming to visit and intervene in our history is not a new one either. So I've got some pictures on the screen there of, of some very current images of uh, our culture recognizing these super beings that come to save the earth, all right? When I was growing up in the 80s, one of the first kind of movies I can remember clearly going to see as a teenager was E.T. Anyone remember that movie? And E.T. was far from human. But the characters in uh, television, characters like Bionic Man or Bionic Woman, or here Wonder Woman and Superman, just to be politically correct, that we're representing both sex as well. Um, you can see that Bionic Woman and, and uh, 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 sorry, Superman and, and Wonder Woman were, are kind of otherworldly. And uh, they more kind of resemble Greek heroes in terms of gods coming to earth to save. And so, unfortunately, when we kind of consider some of these things, it doesn't really help us to, to think and understand the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, in the first place, these are fictional things, and that sometimes predisposes us to doubt. So when we start considering what the Scripture says, we approach it with skepticism. Um, and I want to suggest to you this morning that, what I want to suggest, I want to say to you this morning, that these kind of characters are vastly, vastly different from the person of Jesus, who Christians believe is God 
incarnate. There's nothing in fact or fiction in the history of man which matches the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus. And humanly speaking, no one was expecting what happened. Not even Judaism was looking for a Messiah in the way that Jesus came. And so I, I want to put it to you this, this morning that we've become so accustomed to the story. We've become so accustomed to the creeds that we pray, the prayers that we pray. And we've become so distracted by the tinsel and everything that is around Christmas that we really have ceased to appreciate the wonder and the mystery of celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. And my prayer is over the next month, and this is the Advent season, where people think about that and reflect on that. My prayer, wherever you are with Jesus, my prayer is that God would draw you over this next month, that the wonder of Christ would once again grip your heart. That you would look beyond the Christmas trees and the tinsel and the distraction about when Jesus was born, whether there are pagan festivals involved in this. I'm going to speak about a little bit of that. Would you just leave that all behind for a moment? Just leave it all behind and just reflect on the wonder of who Jesus is. And so I want to put it to you first up as an introduction this morning that really as Christians, okay, I'm not talking about pagans now. I'm not talking about people that are not saved. I'm talking about as Christians that this, this belief of the incarnation of Christ should be at the very focus of our celebration at this Christmas time. And I'm aware that as we approach Christmas, strangely enough, it can be a time of depression for a lot of people. Not just for, for ordinary men and women that don't know Christ, and uh, sometimes celebrations that you have, you can reflect on the loss of your family or your, or, your, or your friends that are no longer with you, and there can be a kind of depression that comes upon people. But I'm speaking also about Christians. I've had a number of Christmases that have been a great letdown. <laughs> And why do I say that? Because you spend a lot of money and a lot of time making, uh, focusing on the celebration and getting everything ready. And, and sometimes the returns for all the investments seem quite minimal. Anyone recognize what I'm talking about? Sometimes when families get together, there's lots of fighting that happens. Especially when your favorite uncle's had too much to drink and he kind of starts laying into people after the meal. I know this happened in our family as well. Anyone recognize this? Come on, let's be honest. And so there's kind of, you can have this letdown after Christmas, isn't it? And uh, some of our depression around Christmas and after Christmas can be because really in our hearts we've turned away from the central message of the incarnation and everything has been whittled away by all the trappings that go around it. All the tinsel, all the, the uh, materialism, all the the Black Friday and the whatever Monday and just get money, 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 all that stuff. It just, uh, the, the joy of the incarnation is just robbed from us. And all that stuff starts to take precedence in our lives. Well, I want to encourage you as Jesus followers, as disciples of Jesus, look beyond all that stuff this, this Christmas and just let your heart again be captured by the incarnation of Jesus. So I do want to just say a couple of things, because every year people speak to me and say, well, it's not really the date that Jesus was born, and it's a pagan festival. <laughs> Let me put your minds at rest this morning, okay? It's probably not true. Uh, it's probably true that December 25 is, might not be the right day, all right? No one knows exactly the day that Jesus was born. No one. 
even in the first century, uh, Clement of, of Alexander, one of the church fathers, towards the end of the second century, he already was saying in his writings, if you read his writings, there was already a whole lot of opinion about when Jesus was born. But we do know by the end of the fourth century, the birth of Jesus was being celebrated on the 6th of January, and then later, December the 25th. And this was due to how the calendar was, was, uh, was, uh, was um, interpreted. It's, it is true that in Rome, there was a feast called Saturnalia, which was, which was uh, celebrating Saturn. It was a pagan festival, and they used to give gifts during the week of the 17th to the 24th of December. And it was a time where everyone celebrated, and they gave gifts to their children, and there was all sorts of rela relaxation that happened. And it certainly was a pagan festival. And sometimes Christians get concerned and say, well, that's really what Christmas is, but that's not really what Christmas is. Because most scholars are quite confident that it's got nothing to do with the date of Christmas because how, how, um, uh, the, the, the way that the date has been cancelled, uh, calculated rather, is around Jewish, the Jewish idea that when a prophet came and, and you understood when a prophet was born, the, the, the date of their death was worked out in, in, in accordance with their birth date and what was prophesied about them. And so we quite confident that actually the, the, the date of Jesus' birth is worked out according to a Jewish calendar and has nothing to do with pagan festivals, all right? And this is the view that, that Augustine held uh, in the 5th century. He said this, he pointed to the prevailing tradition in the 5th century that uh, the birth of Jesus, he was conceived on the 25th of March and he was born according to tradition upon the 25th of December. This is what Augustine was saying in the 5th century. But it is true that some things have been added around the, f the, f the festival of Christmas and that can become a distraction. But my plea to you this morning <laughs> is that we look beyond the distraction and we celebrate the truth of what Jesus did. Amen? So I'm not saying don't enjoy your turkey or your beef or whatever you're going to have. I'm saying enjoy it. But at the heart is the message of Christ, the incarnation of our Savior. All right, so unfortunately, um, that's not the only distraction around Christmas because it's not, uh, this idea, this, this understanding of God coming as man has not only been neglected by Christians, but it's also been undermined by some people that call themselves Christians. Um, you know, our culture, like I've said, is very open to this idea of super beings that are fictional coming to earth, but there's, a, there's an opposition in our culture to the biblical doctrine of Christ coming as a man. And we can see this right from the beginning of church history. People have struggled with this idea right from the beginning of church history. There have been people that have sought to um, handle the difficulty of the incarnation by denying, simply denying that Jesus was divine. So the first thing people have done is deny the deity of Christ. So there were these guys called the Ebonites in the first couple of centuries who believed in one God. They were monotheists. They believed in one God. They taught that Jesus was Messiah. They taught that he was the true prophet prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15, but they rejected the idea of the virgin birth. They said, no, he's not, he's not, there's nothing divine about Jesus. He's just the natural son of Mary and Joseph. And they believed, the Ebonites believed, that what made Jesus the Messiah is that he followed the law perfectly. And that's why he was our Savior, because he followed the law perfectly, but he wasn't divine. All right, so this is what the Ebonites believed. And in the, in the early centuries, there's lots of... Um, debate and controversy, and the church eventually came up with the Nicene Creed, the, the, the creeds to, to uh, encapsulate what Christians 
held to as biblical and true. So there were some people that said, no, Jesus is not divine. On the other hand, there were also some people that said Jesus was not human. So they sacrificed his humanity. And they, they were called docetists, all right? And they were also in the first couple of centuries. And uh, this is one of the first heresies that the church had to kind of deal with. And uh, they believed that Jesus didn't have a natural body, that he was purely spirit. So he was not in, in any way human. So when he walked on this earth, it was actually a spiritual being that was walking on this earth. And it wasn't a man that was in, uh, Jesus was not a, a man with a physical body. He had a phantom body. And so they denied the resurrection, they denied the ascension. And so these were the early challenges that the churches had. But more recently, in Great Britain in particular, in the 60s and 70s, there are a group of scholars, and I've mentioned one before, a guy called John Hick, who was the professor in Birmingham, who were, who were determined to say that Jesus was not unique. That actually, there's many ways to God, and who are we as Christians to say that Jesus is the only way? And so what they tried to do, they wrote a collection of essays called the, the Myth of the Incarnation, which they began to undermine, and they called themselves Christians, but they undermined the, the traditional doctrine of the Incarnation. And they said, actually, no, no Jesus, he, he, wasn't incarn he, he wasn't God incarnate, and they wrote these, these essays uh, to, to, to dismiss what they said was a myth. And so that's in our culture as well. We have these things where even Christians are, 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 are happy to undermine the foundations of the Christian faith that have been around for thousands of years. So I'm putting it to you this morning that we really need to understand what the incarnation is, not just to properly, properly observe Christmas with the correct heart of worship, but also to preserve sound doctrine, that we believe orthodox doctrine about who Jesus is. And you might say, well, Ant, I'm not very theological. I want to say this to you. As soon as you have an opinion about God or suffering, you are a theologian at that point, right then. <laughs> so don't, don't think that you're not. You are. Every one of us is. As soon as we have an opinion about who, who God is or why suffering happens in the world, we are theologians. So best we think a little bit more then about what God shows us in His Word. And the third thing I want to say is that, unfortunately... This idea of the incarnation is the point sometimes where people that uh, reject the Christian faith, this is, this is the basis on which they reject the Christian faith. Uh, and so I want, to, I want to put it to you that it's a vital thing because every other thing that comes after the incarnation rises or falls on what we believe about Jesus coming fully God and fully man. And this is the, this is the dividing line between the things that are cults and true Christian Orthodoxy And uh, J.R. Packer, a favorite writer of mine, wrote a wonderful book. If you want to read a good book about God and who God is, read this book. It's called Knowing God. All right, J.R. Packer. And you have to read a, a chapter at a time because it will make you think a little bit. But he says this. He says, uh, this, it is here that Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many of those who f found difficulties with the above-mentioned things, uh, he's talking about stuff like um, the virgin birth, miracles, the atonement, have come to grief. It's around this, this understanding of Jesus coming as fully God and fully man. And so, there are some things that we, Christians, as Christians, we, we do share with other great uh, religions. Um, Christianity certainly shares uh, the belief of an infinite and transcendent God who's the source of every good thing and every good value. 
Uh, Christianity respects that in every part, in other parts of the world, there are other great traditions, religious beliefs that um, may, make it possible for people to experience God in, in some kind of way. But the doctrine of the incarnation separates Christianity in a very, very fundamental way from other faiths. Because Christians hold, because of the incarnation, what we are celebrating now at Christmas, we hold, and this is different to every other great religion, that actually God has made himself fully known to us in the person of Jesus. The complete revelation of who God is, his infinite wisdom, his goodness, his kindness, all of it is manifest in the body of a human being called Jesus Christ. And if we know who Jesus Christ is and see who Jesus Christ is and understand the fullness of who Jesus is, we can know God and who He is. That's the extraordinary claim of Christianity that sets it apart from every other faith. Fully revealed in the person of a, a, in the, in the, in a human form, the fullness of God. And so I want to encourage you to think about this a little bit. The Bereans were, were um, complimented that they gave much time to thinking about what they believed. Uh, Peter says, have a good, a good uh, reason for believing what you believe. If you never thought about this, I want to encourage you to think about it a little bit. And, and here are some things that I want to um, say to you are the purposes of the incarnation, a couple of things. And if we lay these things aside, we begin to lose everything in the Christian faith. This is what the Bible says is the purpose of why God came to us in the person of Jesus. First of all, to reveal himself to us. Very simple. The first purpose of the incarnation is that God can fully reveal himself to humanity. And there are many Christians, um, many Christians, many um, scriptures in which we can see this. Um, the scripture says, in the past God revealed himself through his works. His world, Psalm 19, and His word, Psalm 19. Hebrews 1 says this, I think it's on the screen. In the coming of Christ, God was revealed in the person of Jesus. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, who He's appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. I love Hebrews. It's a great book. Speaking about who Jesus is, he fully represents exactly, he's the exact representation of the fullness of God the Father to us. Man, that should, that should explode in your heart. A great joy if you know Jesus. He's the full representation of God. To us, the exact representation of the fullness of God's nature. And he upholds all things by the power of his words. Come on now. This is good to get excited about. I love John 1. It also says this, uh, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came to us in Christ. Amen. Come on. We don't have to observe law anymore. We are not judged by our observance of moral law. The fullness of God in Christ Jesus has come to us, and grace and truth are available to you and I because of the love of Jesus. What a wonderful way to live, free. So that's the first the reason that God wanted to show the fullness of who he was to us. And that's why Jesus can say in John 14, he who has seen me, has seen the Father. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? 
Jesus is saying, no, well, if you've seen me, you've seen how, who I am, how I work with people, you've seen God. That's his claim. So I want to encourage you, if you're not a reader, read the Gospels. Just read the story of who Jesus is. Read the story of how he worked with people, how he loved people, how he forgave people. Read the story of Jesus in the Gospels to help you understand who God is. Because Jesus says, when you've seen me, you understand who I am, you've seen the fullness of God the Father. All right? And also, not only does the incarnation show us who God is, it also shows us who we are. And this is what I mean. Uh, John 1 says this, In Him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not understand it. There was a true light which coming into the world shows light to every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and yet the world did not know Him. So here we see the incarnation also helps us to understand who we are, that we haven't, we haven't recognized who, who, who Jesus was and, until it's been revealed to us by faith. And Ephesians puts it this way. It says, uh, Before God revealed His standard of righteousness in law, but in Christ the righteous standard was revealed in person. Aha, I love it again. We don't have to look at all the law anymore. No, the fullness of the law was, was revealed to us in the righteous person of Jesus. And we can see the fullness of what God intended through the law in the person of Jesus. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so we can see from uh, many, many references that Jesus is clearly claimed to be the very one whom the apostles represented as the incarnate Son of God. And so to not believe in Jesus as God incarnate is therefore to reject all of God's divine revelation, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so it's not surprising to me that those who want to reject biblical teaching of the incarnation also reject the authority of the Scripture, they also reject miracles, they also reject everything else. Wow, because the one follows from the other. So that's the first reason that God uh, wants us to understand the incarnation, who God is to us and who we are to him. The second reason is that he wants to rescue humanity. Remember, I've used this illustration before. When, 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 you, are, when you are, like we like to go to the, the Mediterranean on holiday, and if you are in the Mediterranean and you see someone drowning in the sea, you don't take out a swimming manual, a book on swimming, and throw it to them and say, best you read the book on how to swim. You need to learn to swim right now. Of course we don't do that. If we see someone drowning, we dash into the water with a life vest or, or, or one of those circular things, and we get them out. We rescue them. My point is, that's what God wants to do to us. We are fallen. We, we are irredeemable in, our, in our, of ourselves. And God doesn't just say, read the book, read the Bible, and learn about how to be a good person. He comes and rescues us in the person of Jesus. He rescues us. He dives into our lives, into the water, and He swims with us, and He takes us out, and He rescues us. And what was dead becomes alive in Jesus. For those of you visiting, I do get a bit loud, all right? It's not that I'm angry. I just, I just, I'm a loud person. For my sins, I, I'm married to a very, very quiet lady. And you can imagine what it was like in the first couple of years of our marriage, right? It was very tough. She thought I was always shouting, and I, I thought I was... I thought I was just speaking normally. Anyone know about that? Yes? There's some others? Okay. 
And so this idea this, that Jesus came to rescue us is right in the foundation of the incarnation. And we see it all over the scripture. Luke 10, 19, Matthew 9, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. Yes, that's why Jesus came, to seek what was lost. I love Galatians, another favorite portion for me. Galatians 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem, He might rescue those who were under the law, that we might receive full adoption as sons. That's worth getting excited about. That's worth celebrating the baby in the cradle. Without the baby coming in the cradle, this is impossible. None of this is possible. Redemption, atonement, forgiveness of sin, nothing is possible. But everything is possible when we understand what the baby in the cradle represents for us. He has a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners amongst whom I am the foremost, says Paul in Timothy. He recognizes, man, I need rescue. First, I'm the first in the line that needs rescue, says Paul. And so I'm putting it to you this morning that there's an inseparable relationship between the incarnation of Christ and the atonement, the cross, what he bought for us on the cross. And we see that every time we break bread. And I was hoping to break bread this morning, but I forgot to, to ask the guys to set up the, 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 the wine and the stuff. So I'm sorry, sorry, sorry about that. But every time we come to the communion table, we are celebrating the atonement. We are celebrating the incarnation every time we break bread. Do you realize that? We are saying we agree when we break bread together. Why do I say that? Because there are two elements in the bread and the wine. And those elements are evidence of the necessity of God coming as a human. The bread, what does it symbolize? It, it symbolizes a physical body. That's why in some traditions the bread is unleavened bread. Because the unleavened bread represents a body that is not tainted by sin. Leaven in, 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 in the Jewish tradition in bread represented sin that permeates and touches everything. And so in some traditions, the bread that is broken is unleavened bread, representing a sinless body, a sinless person, Jesus, the embodiment of that. And in the same way, blood is only possible with a physical body, isn't it? And this is what um, Hebrews puts plainly in Hebrews 9.22, apart from the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so remind yourself every time you break bread that you are celebrating at the same time the incarnation of God in the person of Christ Jesus and the atonement, what the cross has bought for us through the breaking of Christ's body and the shedding of His blood. And so it's not surprising to me that these things are, are the devil would try and undermine these thoughts in people's hearts and lives and get them to doubt them because they're the very foundation of all that we believe as Christians. I want to quote to John Hick again, not to um, uh, give him any kind of undue elevation, but simply in this book that I've quoted to you, The Myth of God Incarnate, uh, he, he actually says it plainly. He says this, the problem which has come to the surface in the encounter of Christianity with other world religions is this. If Jesus was literally God incarnate, and if it is by his death alone that man can be saved, 
and by the response to Him alone, that can be, they can appropriate salvation, then the only doorway to eternal life is the Christian faith. Surprise, surprise. That is the claim of Christianity. And we know that this is what Paul says in Romans, isn't it? The entire, the entire uh, discussion for Paul in, in, in Romans 5 is about how can it be that through one man many are saved? How can it be? And Paul discusses that. Go and read it for yourself in Romans 5. And he uses this kind of illustration. He says, actually, it was through the sin of one man, Adam. Uh, it's Romans 5.12. Because of Adam's sin, there was a, upon the whole human race that constituted all of us to be sinful before God, through the first Adam. And because of the sin of first Adam, all of us are under God's anger. And once again, I want to say this to you, God is not angry with anything in you, in you except sin in your life, all right, and in my life. God doesn't like sin. He's not against people. He just doesn't like sin. And too often, Christians have made people the problem rather than sin. It's not that God, God loves people, just doesn't like sin. And that's why He wants to do away with sin in our lives, all right? And so, the solution that God provides, says Paul, is that there's a second Adam that comes, Jesus Christ, who is perfect, a fully human, fully God, absolutely sinless, and through second Adam, Christ, all those that believe by faith are saved. That first, the sin of first Adam no longer is affecting our lives because of our faith in Jesus, the perfect one that Paul calls second Adam. Romans 5, this is what it says. For the transgressions of the one, uh, for if by transgressions of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ, and then as through one, uh, uh, so then as through one transgressions re resulted in condemnation to all men, even so one through the act of righteousness, there is justification for the life to all men. He's saying it in kind of confusing language, but that's the idea, isn't it? Through the one man, Adam, came death. Through second Adam, Christ, comes life for all who will believe. And then thirdly, I want to say this. The third purpose that God has for us in Christ coming fully God, fully man. Initially, God wanted us to reign, and His ultimate purpose is that we would reign over all of His creation together with Him. Genesis 1.26 says uh, that man was placed in the Garden of Eden, and we are made in the image of God. It says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let man rule over fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's part of our fallenness that we don't rule with very well. It's part of our fallenness that our, our, our seas are full of plastic, that, that wildlife can't even survive anymore. What is that because of? That's because of the sin of man, the fallenness of man, who's not really caring for his, the creation of God in the way that God intended so I want to challenge you as I challenge myself. Perhaps we should stop using straws and uh, throw away plastic bottles and all this kind of stuff. Why? Because we are called to be stewards of God's creation, and He wanted us to rule from the beginning over creation with Him. Best we rule well. Best we rule, ru 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 rule wi wisely. 
There I go again. Wisely. Uh, I read that uh, in 10 years' time, every single car, new car, will be electric. That's a cool thing. That's a good thing. That's a very positive thing for our environment, isn't it? So let's, let's, I'm not making this a cause. I'm just saying let's think as rulers over God's creation together with Him how we can best rule and represent Him in how we think about the world and live in the world. Hey, Andy? Solar power and wind power and all that stuff. And so the idea that the Bible says is that we are to be a kingdom of priests that rule together with God. And you can read that all over the scripture, Exodus 19, 1 Peter 2, Revelation 1. And this reign, this rule, was fully established when Messiah came and he subdued the earth and in Christ he's begun to rule. And we know, we've looked at this many times through, through um, the life of Adam, uh, Abraham, the tribe of Judah, the seed of David, this lineage, this rulership is established in, in, in all of the earth. And that's why when you read the, 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 the Christmas story in the Gospels, what do the, what do the writers do in particular? They make sure we understand the genealogy of who Jesus is and where he came from because they are establishing the line so that we can see that he is in the line of Messiah who came to rule over all things. And this is the great promise for you and I, that we will reign over all things together with Christ. And so this is why um, the angel comes to Mary and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be called Great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom shall have no end. There's the great promise. That's what God wanted to establish. He wanted to, His Messiah to reign over all of His creation. And you and I, by faith, we will reign. Uh, we do reign with God over His creation. And we'll reign in the new, the new heavens and the new earth together with Him. Are you still with me? And so, this is what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to get us to understand. And um, he says this in, uh, in uh, verses six to eight of hebrews chapter two he says that um, jesus will rule over the works of your hands and he's speaking of christ but he's speaking of christ reigning as man not just as eternal god but as man and so it was necessary for jesus to come in the form of a man so that he would rule as a man over the earth and that's so important for us to understand for the future of the church as well because the lord is going to come and establish his kingdom as the God-man, as, as Jesus. He was born in the cradle, and, and that's the future of who Jesus is. He's going to come back as the, the reigning king in the form of a man. And so the last thing I'd like to say to you in terms of why we need to value the incarnation is that the, what Jesus is doing for us right now takes on greater meaning because of the incarnation. This is what I mean. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, There's one God... There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. 1, 1 Timothy 2. So there is this, there is this uh, eternal thing that God is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back and we're going to rule together with him. But right now, Jesus is making intercession for you and I 
before the Father. That's what, what, what the, um, the Bible says. 1 John 2. Jesus is our advocate in heaven. And that role that he is right now on our behalf praying for us, he needed to be a man to do that. Because he needed to be able to fully understand what we go through. Fully understand the temptations that we have as humans. And therefore, before the throne of God, represent us completely and well without spot and blemish before the Father right now. That was, would be impossible if Jesus wasn't fully human. This is what Hebrews says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make appreciation for the sins of the people. For since he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of all those who are tempted. That's why we can confidently say as believers that we have Jesus fully representing us before the Father. And every temptation that we have right in this life, He knows about. Every depression that we've gone through, He knows about. And He can fully represent our hearts before God the Father right now, praying for us. That's only possible because of the incarnation. Hebrews 4 puts it plainly. Since then we have a great high priest has passed through the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he is without sin. Let, let, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace in our help of, in our time of need. You can draw, you can draw near with confidence to the throne of God in your time of mercy because there's a perfect high priest who knows what it is to be a man and live like a man and walk like a man. The fullness of God in the fullness of humanity representing you before God the Father. That's good news. And so to deny the incarnation is to, to, to deny everything. The virgin birth, the miracles of God, His atonement, His bodily resurrection, if you deny the incarnation, you deny all of that. To understand and accept the incarnation is to believe all of those things. Last little quote, Packer. It's from misbelief, or at least inadequate belief, about the incarnation that difficulties at other points of the gospel story usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, those other difficulties dissolve. Once we see that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of the other things. It's all of a piece. It hangs together completely. The incarnation itself is an unfathomable ministry, but a mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. Well, I've done my best to uh, convince you <laughs> this morning of why we need to understand fully and completely what Jesus did for us when he came and was born as a baby. The cradle and the cross go together. So let me finish with three little implications of the incarnation. First, the incarnation informs us that we are completely sinful and we are in a desperate condition apart from divine intervention. I've tried to make that clear this morning. And my point in, in summary is this, that surely God would never have considered the incarnation was necessary unless there was a, no other possible means by which people could save themselves. 
The, the, the incarnation implies what Romans 1 says, the first three chapters of, of the book of Romans, that man is totally and irreversibly lost, left to himself, that we cannot save ourselves. And if we could save ourselves, then we wouldn't even choose to save ourselves. The point, I can put it this way. If, if the cure requires a drastic measure, then the sickness in the body is very severe. That's what I'm trying to say to you. I'm, I'm saying that uh, no one would conceive to allow a doctor to remove someone's leg uh, if there was a, an infection that could be treated by antibiotics, surely. But if, cancer is, if, 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 the, if the, the sickness is so severe, if there's, if there's cancer and the only thing that's going to cure is to cut the, to cut the leg off, then, then it's, then it's uh, appropriate. And this is what God is saying to us in terms of our lives. The appropriate response for Him was the incarnation of Jesus. We are so sick that we could not be saved in, in, in any other way except for Him to send His Son to save us and rescue us. That's the only way we could be saved. That's what Paul is saying. Our problem requires drastic action. And the drastic action that God gives is in the person of a baby. The fullness of who He is dwelling in a tiny baby and living perfect, a perfect life. Secondly, the second implication is that it shows us God, His desire is fully to save us. I put it to you that we need to ponder the wonder of the incarnation as we reflect on God and His salvation. It's, it's usually at the, that... Uh, we think about this over Easter, where we turn our attention to ponder the love of God in, in the cross. But I want to put it to you, I want to put it to you this morning that actually, I'm quoting someone else here who said this, the wood of the cradle and the wood of the cross are the same. Do you get it? The wood of the cradle and the wood of the cross are the same. The cradle, what we celebrate now, is the first step towards the cross. And it's by the cradle that we should seek to wonder and uh, reflect on the willingness of God and the ability of God to come and save us from our sin. The two go together. And thirdly, I conclude with this, that as we understand the incarnation, it just shows us the foolishness of, of rejecting salvation in Christ and trying to save ourselves. I've put it to you this morning that if we were not hopelessly, irrevocably lost, God would hardly have sent His Son to, to, to save us. So if salvation takes such drastic action by God as the cross and the cradle, surely God is rightly angered when we turn that aside and say, no, we can save ourselves by our own effort, by our own good work. If we do that, we are actually rejecting the work of God's Son. We're saying, actually, our hard work is enough to save ourselves. Our moral behavior is enough to save ourselves. And actually, what Jesus did, it's not enough. And so, if God sent His only begotten Son, surely God is righteous, God is true to Himself, to, to demand that men find salvation only in His Son. And how foolish it would be for all of us to stand before God in any of our own righteousness, which rejects what Jesus has done, the perfect Son of God, God Emmanuel with us, God incarnate. And so I want to put to you this morning that it is a wonderful, reassuring view that we have of 
God in the cradle and on the cross. But actually, Hebrews also says this to us in Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume all of God's enemies. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I want to, I want to finish by encouraging you, asking you to dwell this month as we think about Christmas on the wonder of what Christ has done for you. And I want to ask you in a loving uh, way that doesn't condemn others to hold in, in your heart the truth that there's only one way to be saved. You can, you can lovingly hold on to that. You don't have to condemn anyone else. You don't have to speak badly. But you can lovingly hold on and say, there is one way. It's the way of Jesus. I fully accept the righteousness that is in Christ, what God has brought for me on the cross. There is one way to salvation. Not many. One way to salvation. To the perfect Son, the living Son of God. God with us. Emmanuel. God incarnate. Here with us. Amen. God bless you. I, I, I really trust that you will think about these things, dwell on them, and enjoy what God has done for you in the person of Jesus. Can I pray for you? And then we're going to sing one more song and uh, have some fellowship, some coffee. Yeah? Father, we want to thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you so loved the world that you sent your only son, that whoever believes in him, would not perish, but have eternal life. Father, help us to um, hold on to the truths of what your gospel says. Uh, help us to stand in our culture, which seeks to undermine and make fun of those that hold to these things. Thank you for the truth, the eternal truth that has been in your church for 2,000 years. Help us to understand it fully, Lord. Help, it, help us to pass it on to those that come after us in purity, without compromise holding on to the truth of your words, loving people, but at all, at all times pointing those to Jesus. Those that did not know yet Jesus as Savior, that through our lives they would. And I don't know if you don't know Christ this morning, but I want to say to you that the Bible is um, very clear. It says those that believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, that's enough to to save us. And once we have prayed that in our, in our hearts, forever we are transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we start to live on the inside in a powerful new way that comes by faith in Jesus. So perhaps you're here this morning and you've, 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 never, you've never thought about that. Perhaps you've, you've um, heard what I've said and you say, yeah, I, I recognize that Jesus is fully God. The invitation from God this morning is that you would open your heart and that he would come and live in you and have a relationship with you, that he would make his home in your heart. If that's you this morning, I'm just going to ask you to pray a simple prayer after me. And with confidence, you can stand before God knowing that you have an eternity with him because of what Jesus has done for you. If that's you this morning, pray with me now. Jesus. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you came to do. 
I thank you that you are the fullness of God. I thank you that you are the perfect sacrifice that washes away all of my sin. And I choose to believe right now in who you are, what you've done, and what that brought for me. I put my trust fully in you. I ask you, Lord, to come now and reign in my heart that I might be a son, a daughter, just as your word promises. I pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Everyone says, Amen.